Welcome to Boston Confidential, Beantown's true crime podcast. Boston is a great city, but there's more to it than the Freedom Trail and Fenway Park. There's a startling underbelly to the city, and Boston Confidential will take you on a guided tour of the hub of the universe, Boston, Massachusetts. Hey everybody, welcome back to Boston Confidential. My name's Barry McGuire, and I'm your host. I'm a 20-year private investigator on the streets of Boston and I help run a company called Impact Due Diligence Investigations. If you need anything in terms of investigative services, feel free to contact me at Impact. If I can't help you personally, I'll certainly direct you to the right person or agency. All right, guys, let's get to it. Hey, guys, welcome back to Boston Confidential. We had a great response from our last live episode on the Granby girl. She was identified as Patricia Ann Tucker. After all that time in the woods, it's just remarkable that they were able to identify her. That company, Ostram, and I think there's a competitor in that industry, but Ostram seems to be the market leader in this DNA search. They do this genealogical DNA where Ostram will take your sample, like whomever you're looking for, and submit it to these public DNA databases people who are looking for relatives and heirs and just curious about their ethnicity and their history. And it's really taken off. The public really seems to like it. But now these companies have this repository of DNA and Ostram will submit the sample from this person, the Granbury girl who went missing years ago and they got a hit and they found a relative and then they tracked that relative back to Patricia's five-year-old son. It was totally remarkable. And it seems as though the suspect in that case is the husband who ended up serving time in prison and actually died in prison for rape and a host of other low-life crimes. But we weren't able to get justice from him but at least we know who Patty Ann was and the good people of Granby put her name on the tombstone that they had purchased many, many years ago. And I'm sure they thought they'd never get a name for her, but they did the right thing. And her five-year-old son actually left her in the Granby Cemetery because they had taken such good care of her. That's kind of a heartwarming portion of this case, probably the only one. Also, guys. A case we've mentioned on the show, I haven't covered it, but I had mentioned there was a great podcast about the Gilgo Beach murders, and I had followed that, and I had been following this case since its inception. The Gilgo Beach killer, or at least one of them, they do have a suspect, and they made an arrest today. That person's name is Rex Howerman, H-E-U-E-R-M-A-N-N married architect from a New York firm who he spent a lot of time in Manhattan and he lived on Long Island. He still lives there. And it was a massive arrest, big show of police presence on Long Island. And there's those other bodies in this case that they don't know if it's tied to the same killer. Can you imagine that? The podcast I had recommended from this chair was LISK, L-I-S-K. It stands for Long Island Serial Killer. 
it's a whole series on this one case, and they do an excellent job. Lisk, L-I-S-K, check it out. I also wanted to mention, guys, I'm kind of got a little bit of pushback on the episode with the murder of Whitey Bulger in prison. Some people said that I was a chump for not believing the FBI was involved in this. In fact, choosing incompetence over conspiracy. And a lot of times, especially when the federal government's involved, the case is incompetence. It can appear like conspiracy. It's just a string of people who really don't give a shit. It's a conspiracy of fools, maybe, but not in a conspiracy in the general sense. The whole prison knew Whitey was coming before he got there, and the guards knew as well. So if they didn't say anything, that's on them. And another thing, I got a strange email that I wasn't more concerned with the murder of a prisoner. If that prisoner is Whitey Bulger, who probably, what, killed 50, we know he strangled the life out of two women, pulled the teeth out of a safe cracker, and I had mentioned Karma. And did Karma come around for James Bulger? I'd have to say yes. I've always looked at it like this. For all Bulger's power, for all his money, for his life, I don't know, in the headlines or living the life he wanted, it ended up with him getting his eyes gouged out in a prison cell in his 80s, you know? Is that how you want your life to end in your 80s? Wouldn't you rather be surrounded by family holding your hand, you know, saying, I'll see you when I get there? No, it wasn't to be. And I think it was, in fact, comma in this case. Also, there's a bit of an update on that case. And the two main assailants, there was a lookout as well, but the two main assailants are not going to face the death penalty for what they allegedly did to Jim Bulger. I don't know what the lookout, I don't know what he's going to suffer, but he's obviously the weak link in that case. And he had already gotten out of the joint. I mean, talk about stupid, right? I guess that's why you're in prison, but... Also, guys, I urge you to visit TB Daily News for Turtle Boy's updates on the Karen Reed, John O'Keefe case. He's up to about part 73, but specifically, I'd like you to look at part 72, where Turtle Boy, Aiden Kearney, he shows a picture of Colin Albert with about a half of a black eye, you know, a healing black eye. And Turtle Boy says this photograph taken with a relative, a younger relative who's in the Marines, was taken about two weeks after John O'Keefe was killed. And don't forget, previously Colin Alpert had come up with scrapes on his knuckles around this same time period. So Turtle Boy is still continuing to march on this case, and he gets more and more information every day. So again, that's part 72. Check that out. It looks like a little mouse under his eye. That's what we used to call it when I was a kid, like a healing black eye. And that would be about the time frame, right? But also, part 73 is kind of an automation of the accident scene where the prosecutors allege that Karen Reed got up to something like 27 miles an hour before striking 
her boyfriend, John O'Keefe, and letting him die laying on the front lawn of the Alberts' home, 27 miles per hour. And in this diagram, it's indicated that it would have taken much, much longer, a much longer distance for the vehicle to rev up to 27 miles an hour. Also, this demonstration indicates that the vehicle's other taillight would have been broken. I believe it would have been the left taillight rather than the right taillight. So I know this probably won't be admitted into court, but I wouldn't be surprised if the defense brought an accident scene investigator to do something similar. I believe this is one of the, what they call turtle riders on the show who did this for him and, you know, just compiled it. But I believe they would get an accident scene investigator involved in this one. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. Turtle Boy also has new video of a person he says is one of the Alberts talking about going before a federal grand jury. And he says this person was going next week. I don't know when it was taken. So the federal grand jury is obviously still going on. I don't know how long they're impaneled for. It's usually several months. But they do handle several cases. You know, it's not just one at a time. But it seems as though the feds are pretty deep into this case. Are they looking at the homicide? Or are they looking at possible police corruption in this case? Well, both. Again, raises a lot of questions. How do you testify before a federal grand jury if you're probably or likely going to testify in a state murder trial? Seems strange, right? I'm going to have to get one of my lawyer friends to educate me a little bit on that. All right, guys, that was a little bit longer of an intro than I originally wanted, but let's get to it. Today's case, guys, is the case of John Monterano, probably the most feared hitman slash gangster in Boston history. And I'm going to tell you all about Mr. Monterano. I think we're going to do this in two episodes. There's a lot here. Monterano was a founding member of the Winter Hill Gang. I think he was originally charged with 20 homicides. Can you multiply that by two just because of the time frame? Just because John Monterano was involved in the rackets at this time where people were dropping like flies, just disappearing like it's 19... 60s, 1970s Argentina, and never to be seen again. And Mr. Monterano killed a lot of people. And he just doesn't seem like the type, right? At certain times, you'll see him testify at his trial, at Stevie Fleming's trial, and he testified against John Conley as well. And John Monterano doesn't see himself as a rat or a stool pigeon for doing this, and neither do I, quite frankly. And a lot of this research was taken from Howie Carr's book. I read it originally when it came out, and I reread it for this podcast. The book is Hitman by Howie Carr, and it's an excellent look at John Monterano, but it's also an excellent look. It kind of encapsulates the time frame this very, very violent time in Boston from the late 50s 
through the 80s, I guess through the 90s, really. And John Moderano, guys, is an unlikely gangster. He grew up, I don't want to say wealthy, but very well off. He was born in 1940 in a two-parent household, which is rare for career criminals. But he grew up in a two-family home. His father was Angelo, but they called him Andy Moderano. And from the time that John Moderano was little, Andy was always a hustler. He was originally a taxi driver. Then he bought two taxi medallions, so he was the owner of two taxi cabs. He put his brothers to work, and later he would open a successful restaurant called Luigi's on Washington Street in downtown Boston, a few blocks from what would become the combat zone. And at that time, Scully Square was the adult entertainment venue in Boston, which was several more blocks up towards what is now Boston City Hall. It's hard to picture that as like a red light district, but it was. So again, John Monterano and his brother Jimmy were pretty well provided for. And I think the downfall was the location of Luigi's. John Monterano loved the nightlife, the action of the city. He was a good student and a great athlete, really good at football, could have played college football, they say. And his brother did. I believe his brother, Jim Moderano, went off to Boston College to play football. And I believe when John Moderano was in high school, just after he got his driver's license, his father bought him a brand new car. Oh, not a brand new car. It was like a 1949 model. But that was unheard of in those days. And geez, even growing up in the 70s and 80s in the city, I was in South Boston. Every family had one car, if you were lucky, if you were lucky. So parking was never an issue in South Boston. I know a lot of you can't imagine that, but every triple decker now has two cars per floor. And before it would be one car per household, you know, and it was just a different time. And they had money and Sunday dinners, they were raised right. Both brothers went to St. Clement's, I believe, in Somerville, and they went on to parochial school and then on to private school. He actually lived at school during high school. He was going to Mount St. Charles Academy in Woonsocket, Rhode Island, and he lived there for quite some time. Both he and his brother, as I said, excelled at football, and John just wasn't into the academics. It was later learned that he would have probably been identified as having dyslexia. Reading was very difficult for him, but not for his brother. So John Moderano in those days, right? Here it is. You're on the cusp of adulthood, teenagehood, really. And he was doing well in football, but he had really no interest in going to college. And people were trying to talk him into it. One of the people trying to talk John Monterano into going to college and playing football was Ed Bradley of 60 Minutes fame. Bradley was a lifelong correspondent at CBS. Very bright guy. He was black. John Monterano was white. And 
they got along famously. They got kind of that brotherhood when you play football with somebody. And they were always quite fond of each other. And when this happened with John Monterano, Ed Bradley asked for an interview. And it's a very illuminating interview. And I'm going to place that in the show notes. It's excellent. If you've got a few minutes, watch this. But the streets of Boston were calling to John Monterano. And he didn't go on to college. He didn't finish Mount St. Charles. Later that year, he left Mount St. Charles and returned to the Boston area. And quite frankly, it was all downhill from there. Andy Monterano, John's father, as I said before, owned a restaurant on Washington Street with a friend of his by the name of A.B. Sarkis. He was a Jewish guy and he staked the money, I believe, for Luigi's and they were partners. I don't know how much Starkis was involved in the day-to-day, but he was a big-time bookie. And when I tell you big-time, I think you're massively underestimating. Now, Andy Monterano, John's father, also took some bets on the side. He was a part-time bookmaker, and everybody really did. So Luigi's was going very well for these two partners. And it went even better when they opened up the back room as an after-hours club. They made a hell of a lot more money because you could charge more for a drink and you didn't have to serve food. So you could let, you know, half of the wait staff go. And it was a really cash business, right? It was just pouring in. And there was a thousand spots like this in Boston, after-hours clubs and dice games and all that. Boston was a totally different city back then. The amount of like everyday police corruption was massive. So in essence, Andy Monrano, John's father, kind of got him involved in this line. Andy was a big gambler. They'd say he'd bet on anything. But again, the family was not hurting for money. Everybody had a new car. It was kind of exceptional for the time. You'd expect it more in this day and age. But back then, the Monteranos were kind of living high on the hog. But John, again, big football player. You know, you're born in the city or at least close to the city. He could mix it up. And he was as wide as a doorframe, you know, and over six feet tall. You wouldn't physically go up and mess with John Monterano. And as his reputation progressed, you wouldn't mess with him at all. You would either steer clear of him or you'd be his friend. There was no in-between. One guy who introduced himself in the wrong manner to Mr. Matarano got two in the hat in another after-hours club with a room full of witnesses. The guy did try to draw down on John Matarano first, and Matarano beat him to the punch, but... That's about what you could expect if you screwed with the Matarano's. And this was at the beginning of Matarano's reputation. It would only grow from there. But I do think those younger years were formative for John Matarano. At a certain point concerning Luigi's, Andy Matarano's partner, A.B. Sarkis, had a bad run of it in the numbers. He, again, he was a huge bookmaker and sold his portion of Luigi's to Andy Monterano. And now the money was really flowing in. 
Andy Monterano became a Shylock, a loan shock as well. He went into business with another guy, and that was extremely profitable. At that point, the Monteranos purchased a house in Milton, Massachusetts, just south of Boston. And it's probably the wealthiest community, and it definitely was back in the 40s and 50s. It's a beautiful community, homes to governors, senators. Most people in our area in Massachusetts know Milton, Massachusetts. Very high end. So they bought one house, and shortly thereafter, so much money was coming in from the loan shocking operation and Luigi's itself. They purchased some land, built another house, sold the first house. So cash was flowing for the Monteranos. There was really no need of John Monterano to get into this business, right? Go on to college, go on straight and narrow. That's what his father wanted from. His father seems like a good guy. He did know a lot of gamblers and criminals, but that was Boston in those days. There was a story in Howie Carr's book, Hitman, that Andy Moderano would take John to see the Boston Braves, which is no longer around, right? But they played at BU Field, Nickerson Field, and all these gamblers would occupy one section of the bleachers, and a lot of them would get in for nothing because, you know, they knew the ushers and all that, right? So they would gamble on each pitch, strike, ball. If there'd be a home run, a single, something like that. And it was just degenerate gambling at his best. But that's where he knew gambling was a great business because he saw all these people losing most of the time. He wanted to be on the other end, making the money from those losers. But Andy Monterano was in that life. He wasn't in for the rough stuff, and everybody liked the guy. So he wasn't in much danger. But it's crazy just being in that world a little bit. I think Andy Monterano kind of sealed the fate for John. So John Monterano didn't last long at Mount St. Charles in Woonsocket, Rhode Island. He noticed when he'd come back from weekends that living in Milton and close to Boston was a lot more fun than going to an all-boys school every day, all day, and on the weekends, right? So he finished his last three years at Milton High, and he was a standout for three sports, including football. It was during this time frame that he met a woman, or a girl at the time, I guess, high school girl, Nancy O'Neill. And they had one date, but it didn't go that well, but they reconnected years later. And they'd end up marrying, and it didn't go so well. And John Moderano was mostly living the life of a gangster at that time. So, guys, just after high school, Andy Moderano got John a job working like as an usher in one of the theaters downtown, and then later at restaurants and stuff like that. But this is where John Moderano fell in love with the nightlife and the darker side of Boston. So, man, it was just a mistake. The guy was smart enough. He was likable enough. He was loyal to his friends to a fault, and that would come through later. But, man, 
just that one year, you know, when you graduate from high school to do something else is so pivotal. But Monterano ends up in downtown Boston during the nighttime. And again, man, it was a different city back then. It really was. So in 1959, guys, John Monterano graduates from Milton High. And again, the father's upset that he doesn't want to go to college. But he thought maybe working at Luigi's, you know, the hard work of a grown man would drive John back to college or back to something respectable. That wasn't going to be the case. I don't think it really ever was going to be the case. So the restaurant at Luigi's, and it did have a good reputation for food and atmosphere and all that. But upstairs from Luigi's is a cordoned off area. It had like 20 steps from the first floor up. So that gave the people upstairs, this is where the After Hours Club was located, a visual to see if the police were ever running up those stairs. And that usually didn't happen because District 4 is right around the corner there and the brass at that station were paid off. Every week, a bagman was said to come around for the payoff money, which would be given to the captain and I think the lieutenant of the station house. The other Boston cops were taken care of around Christmas time and all that. So they didn't have any problems with the Boston police raiding the place. And that was probably the story for the entire neighborhood, quite frankly. Luigi's, the restaurant and lounge, would open at about 11 a.m. and close at. 1 a.m. And from 1 a.m. onward, you know, to the early morning hours, that's where the back room would cater to Boston's wise guys, police, hangers on. It didn't attract the top of the food chain, but it did attract a lot of interesting characters, including ladies of the evening. And it was something less than lady of the evening. I think they called them B-girls. They were dancers in the local clubs, you know, legitimate dancers. Musicals were big at the time. Anything to get people to come in and drink, you know what I mean? So it were these B-girls, and it was kind of like exciting for people who weren't in the life, you know, well, we're going to go to an after-hours club. We had them when I was a kid in South Boston, and I felt the same way doing it. It kind of gives you a feeling of being special, above the law. You're doing something that you can't be punished for because of the people you know. You know what I mean? And I think that was the draw of the After Hours Club. And also, in all honesty, even to this day, Boston closes at like 1 a.m. or 2 a.m. most nights. And most other major cities, you know, nightlife goes on to 3, 4 a.m. in the morning. In that regard, I believe Boston's always been kind of looked at as a parochial backwater, but that was the case. And the early closing time in Boston gave these guys carte blanche to really rake in the money. And I mean, it's all cash. Also, during this time frame, guys, Scully Square, the red light district, was on its last legs. And the city of Boston wanted to redevelop that, and they would do that in the coming years. But the businesses were kind of moving out of Scully Square closer to 
what is the combat zone, what was the combat zone, and closer to Luigi. So that brought in, again, even more colorful of a crowd. And John Martirano became an expert in sizing up, you know, drunks, gangsters, and, you know, breaking up fights and the sudden violence that can come from these people, especially when they had been drinking. So he was a bit of a jack-of-all-trades at Luigi's, and he threw more than one person out of there on their head, you know? So Luigi's was the perfect place for an apprentice gangster, and that's exactly what John Monterano was. And he was doing all of these activities, working mostly nights, and enjoying the nightlife. He got what he wanted. He loved the nightlife. And he got arrested at age 22 for carrying a pistol. And he had really no reason to carry a pistol, but his father, who was also sort of in the life, but definitely a hardcore gambler, also carried a pistol. I think what John Martirano was caught carrying was a small automatic, but you could kind of see it a little bit, all these people he dealt with. So he gets pinched. And at that time, this was his first arrest. And, you know, you had a choice. You could go into any branch of the service or you could go to jail. And that's what John Martirano was looking at, that choice. So he says to the judge, judge, could I have 24 hours to decide what branch of the service I'm going to enter? The judge grants that request. And John Martirano hightails it out of Boston. And while he is on the run, he goes down to Florida. He goes from Florida across to Havana, Cuba, and is hanging out there with other gangsters, mostly Italian. But at that time, Cuba was in total chaos because of Fidel Castro. And John Monterano was there at that time. He'd see people walking around in fatigues and all that. This was just before the fall of Havana. And he saw her coming and he got out of Havana. Six months later, after he got arrested, he goes back to Boston. And during that time frame, a police bagman was working on John's case and he got it broomed. And there were no further problems for John Monterano on at least that specific gun charge. So kind of an interesting story, right? It's like a Maya Lansky thing. You end up in Havana, Cuba during the Castro communist revolution. But he comes back to Boston and goes right back to Luigi's and gets even heavier into organized crime. So again, Andy Monterano, now that John comes back from Florida and from Cuba, He's back at Luigi's and he's drinking, he's fighting, womanizing. So Andy gets John Monterano drafted because during this conversation, he says to one of his friends, you know, it's peacetime. There's really no danger that would come in just a few years in Vietnam. But he gets him drafted and they call his selective service number and John just doesn't want to go. So he does something typically Boston. He hires a friend of his father's who kind of looked like John, but this guy's name was Benedetto Chubby Odo, and he did kind of look like John, 
but he was a mess physically. So he had this guy go to his selective service induction, the physical, and he had flat feet. He couldn't see, overweight, out of shape. And so he goes to the physical. And at the end of it, this guy Odo comes out to John, who's waiting in the parking area, and says, how did it go? He says, I don't know. They're going to call me in a week. No. John Monterell says, no, no way. Go back in there. And he goes back into the doctor, and Odo says, hey, did I make it in? I'm looking to get out of the city for a while. And the doctor says, kid, you couldn't make it into the Boy Scouts. So John Monterell got... 4F. He wasn't accepted into the draft. He was a 4F. And that pissed his father off, but what could he do? The father wouldn't know until years later that Matarano had hired Odo to go in there and basically fake that he was John Matarano and get him a 4F designation so he couldn't be drafted. So now John Matarano was at Luigi's every night, and his father kind of gave up on making Johnny go straight. And his reign would continue, and money started pouring in, and John Monterano wanted to be on the receiving end of that. I think I'm going to leave you here for this one, and on the next episode, I'll take you up through Joe Barbosa, the Bennett's, and the McLaughlin gang war out of Charlestown. John Monterano was around for all of that, and it's a hell of a story, and I hope you enjoyed this one. I enjoyed doing it. I think you're going to enjoy the next one as well. I'm going to take you up from John's first murder all the way up until, you know, relatively recently. But that's all I have for you on this one, guys. If you need to get a hold of me, it's Barry at BostonConfidential.net. That's Barry at BostonConfidential.net. That's the best platform. And again, in the next episode, I'll take you through John Matarano becoming one of the most feared men in Boston organized crime history. In those years from, I don't know, 1960 onward, John Matarano would become feared. He'd become feared by La Costa Nostra. He was a very capable individual, as they used to say. John would soon go on to be friends with Joe Bob Bosa and Jimmy the Bear Flemmy, and he kind of puts that to his downfall, Jimmy the Bear Flemmy, quite frankly, if you want a preview of next week's episode. All right, guys, I'll leave you there. I'll get on to the next one, and I'll see you on the flip side, right? Mm-hmm.